work-life balance on the world tour level. It's tool time on the pace line, and we cap off the show. No, really, we're going to cap this one off. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, stage racing with both the Giro and the Tour of California going on as we record this show. The Pace Line is a production of FatCyclist.com and RedKitePrayer.com. The Fat Cyclist, again, missing turns this week, so RKP publisher Patrick Brady making up for it by taking longer turns at the front, Patrick. <laughs> well, I've been doing my interval training, so I guess I'm ready. I, I know you're ready, in fact, so... Good to have you along. Uh, I am RKP contributor and Paceline host Michael Houghton, and this week, at least for one day, I am your finish line correspondent at the Tour of California. That blue arch, that F-Gen arch is exactly where the red kite is hanging. The red kite means- I was at the end of uh, stage two in Santa Clarita. Uh, the breakaway won the day. Cannondale's Ben King was the winner. The pack crossed just five seconds behind. I talked to a Cannondale team leader, Patrick Lawson Craddock, about how Ben was able to stay away. Lawson, it looked like the bunch had him in their sights. What happened back there? How, was there indecision? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say there was indecision in the bunch. We were going full gas the last last 25K. Uh, but uh, we, we kind of knew the last couple kilometers that... Uh, yeah, it was looking likely that, that, that they were going to stay away. So I think Ben just played it smart and played it safe and uh, just put himself in the best position to win. And your job was what during that? Just stay out of everyone's way? Yeah, stay out of trouble, keep safe, and uh, you know save as much energy as I can going in tomorrow. Yeah, I did a group ride just before the stage, Patrick, and over those last two climbs plus uh, the run into the finish, uh, the, the last 10K there, there was a headwind that started to pick up, so that too uh, played a played a factor in the the outcome of the stage. Pretty good crowd on hand for a Monday stage. Santa Clarita does a nice job, and the locals seem to embrace the race because, you know, these things can be a real hassle uh, for local businesses and people just trying to get around. Yeah, Santa Clarita, you know, is an L.A. burb, so it too suffers from this, the natural congestion of being in the L.A. area. Patrick, stage races have come and gone in the U.S., but it seems like the Tour of California has got some type of formula here that's making it a keeper. Well, I think the big success story is the fact that the organizer has been able to keep Amgen as a sponsor for the entire run. My one concern for the race and its longevity is when the day finally comes, uh, if it does, that Amgen chooses not to renew. Uh, that's always been the big thing, you know, the Tour de Pont, uh, Red Zinger, Coors, um, you know, it, there's not a great history of big stage races getting uh, sponsors to step in, you know, once that initial founding sponsor uh, decides to step away and go to, you know, F1 or golf or bass fishing, whatever. And so, you know, they've done a really remarkable thing in terms of, uh, you know, keeping the race really uh, successful uh, with the help of Amgen. And I hope that either they can find a replacement at some point or keep Amgen involved uh, because this has become, you know, what is truly the greatest showcase of American racing, you know, in, in the history of, you know, international bike racing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. The riders seem to universally love this race. And one in particular likes the state so much 
that he moved here. Patrick, Patrick and I have come across him a couple of times here in California. Lawrence Tandam of Giant Alpeson. He has a ninth and a 14th in the Tour de France. But when he reached Paris in a state of exhaustion at the end of last year's tour, uh, the Dutchman counted backwards 100 days and realized that he had spent a total of 10 nights at home with his wife and young family in that period. At 35 years of age and 13 years into his pro career, Tandam felt that something had to give. He was ready to give up on the whole European thing and ride for a U.S. domestic team. He said this, For the love of cycling, I wanted to get back to basics. Standing next to a car and my naked ass changing my bibs instead of being on a fancy bus just didn't seem to matter anymore. So that's why he was said he was ready to race for Jelly Belly or Team Bissell. But his manager was able to broker a deal with Giant Alpeson where Lawrence could split his time between the States and Europe. That was just a done deal. Easy one for Lawrence. And not only did Tandam move across the Atlantic, he went clear to the other side of the lower 48, settling here in Cali. He was living in uh, Santa Cruz for the winter. Currently, he and his family are residents of the Lake Tahoe area. Patrick, we've seen him at the Grasshopper events in Sonoma County. I know you tried to stay on his wheel for the opening Super Sweetwater. Any luck with that? <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't trying. Um, I, I just happened to be near him. You know, it was it was accidental proximity to greatness. Uh, but yeah, the first time I saw him line up for Old Kaz, uh, I, I you know to this day I don't really know what to say about it other than it was just kind of mind boggling. It's really pretty tremendous, you know, that um, his agent uh, Joao has managed to work this out on behalf on his behalf. Um, it's also a little startling to me that you know this is what he chose for himself. Um, you know, in terms of somebody who's you know dissatisfied with the amount of time with he's had with his family, to then say, okay, I'm going to leave Europe and I'm going go to going to go to California. It's pretty counterintuitive, but, you know, he's making it work. Uh, he's a really down-to-earth guy. It's just, to me, it's one of the best stories in pro cycling right now. Yep. He uh, looked good, too, in the early stages of the Tour of California. Got a glimpse of him uh, there in Santa Clarita, where at the time, at least, he was only like 24 seconds behind. He said, actually, he wanted to race some local crits prior to in the lead-up to his season, but I guess his UCI status kind of gets in the way with that. So for the time being, or at least in the winter, here locally, in California that is, it was the grasshopper events and some local mountain bike races. And it was cool. And he's such a good guy. He's very good with all levels of racers. You know, you can't even, except for the kit and the, the skinny body, you really can't tell that you're <laughs> yeah, sitting next to a pencil arms. pro. Uh, yeah, right. You know, and, and, and to let people know, I mean, when he comes out for a grasshopper, He's there with his family. You know, his kids are playing around. Uh, you know, he's he's brought out, you know, their bikes with them so that they can play around. And they're young kids like mine, you know, uh, not yet school-aged. Uh, so it's it's a really, really dynamite thing. I just have the utmost respect for him. Yeah. Uh, after the Tour of California, Tandam will head to Europe for the Tour de Suisse and then, of course, the Tour de France. So it's back to real work for, for Lawrence. Tandam reckons that he will spend all but three months of 2016 in North America with his European campaign coming to a close at the end of this year's tour. And then after that, he kind of doesn't know you know, what will happen. Probably the race is up in Canada. And then he wants to do Leadville, so fatty and iron for something there. And then he, he'd like to see, like a lot of us, he'd like to see Hawaii. Uh, so. I just a quick question. Are we now 18 for 18? We've mentioned Leadville in every single episode. 
I'm doing my best. I think I kept it out of like show like 14 or something. But, but this is Lawrence, and Lawrence wants to be at Leadville, and we say we say good luck and and hope he does well. And aloha, Lawrence. I mean, really, we love seeing you and your family around. He is a really good guy, like Patrick said. Seems to have great perspective on his place in cycling. Sometimes you know you got to race, and sometimes you just got to ride. Uh, it's time to open up the toolbox toolbox that is on the pace line and take inventory. What each of us should have to keep our bikes rolling. That is next on the pace line. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, Patrick Brady. Fatty not with us this week, but uh, Michael Houghton here, so two out of three. Uh, not so bad. The Pace Line now heading into the garage to talk tools. Uh, but before we do, Patrick, a couple of things here on one of your favorite subjects from the Gearhead segment. Uh, that is one by Grupos. Uh, first, uh, there may be a cassette for you, Patrick, that could get you over the hump. Uh, Wolf Tooth has now expanded to 11-speed cassettes. This is that company that previously made bigger cogs for 10 speeds, allowing 2x10 riders to convert to 1x. So now they have a a 45-tooth cog that can be placed on Shimano's 11-speed mountain cassettes. The max Shimano makes is a 42. And what Wolf Tooth does is sell two cogs, actually. One is an 18 to replace the stock 17 and 19. And then that makes room for the 45 the range goes from 382% with a 42 to 409% with a 45. Now, does that mean, Patrick, you think you could make it up one of these climbs in Sonoma County with a 45 maybe? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do think that would work. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I need to get, you know, a smaller front ring. That's kind of the first step uh, that I, I need to have if I'm going to be running one by. But with a 45, you know, I think you can get your way up just about anything I've encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I just, I will continue to like two chain rings. Uh, I think the front derailleur is a really useful thing for, you know, coming over the top of a climb, uh, and dropping into a descent, uh, being able to bang into a bigger chain ring, uh, and not immediately have to shift four cogs in back. Um, I think that's a pretty useful thing, just as dropping from the big chain ring to the little the moment you hit a hill is also uh, another really useful uh, tactical advantage of the front derailleur. Yeah, and pair that with Shimano synchro shifting, the electronic mountain group, and I think you've got everything you could possibly want there. Oh, certainly. But I mean, you know, still cable actuated devices are working just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, something from the one by world that seems to make perfect sense is a group for e-mountain bikes. A SRAM has announced the EX1. It actually has fewer gears, just eight. But SRAM says they did so to create better chain lines. Now, e-mountain bikes put a little more stress on the drivetrain, so SRAM went out to create a more robust system. Uh, the EX1 has an 1148 gear range, so it's only eight speeds, 1148, about what you'd normally get. So the jumps are naturally going to be bigger. But hey, no problem. You're on an e-bike, right? Sturdier rear derailleur, 
cranks with a Q factor that address the motor in the bottom bracket area and stronger brakes for that heavier bike. Patrick, when you did that e-mountain bike race, were did, did you feel like the Grupo matched uh, the machine you were riding, or could did, did it need a special group? I I wasn't even thinking about the group. Uh, that was kind of the least of my concerns. Um, I was much more uh, cognizant or you know pay, uh, aware of what was going on with uh, which level of assist I was in. Uh, with the Bosch system, and also what the suspension was doing. And so, you know, it's one of those things that there's, for somebody who's going to be using an e-mountain bike, I think there's some learning curve in terms of getting the suspension set up right. And then, like I said, you know, learning uh, which level of assist you ought to be in given uh, the terrain at hand. It is entirely possible to ride an e-mountain bike on sensitive trails without damaging them. It's mm-hmm. totally doable. I keep telling people the A-hole is not in the bike, it's on the bike. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I haven't been that concerned about, you know, the nature of the groups uh, being specced on the bikes. One of the things about EX1 that I find really cr- curious, and I haven't been able to talk to anyone about this, but... You know, while everything looks really normal, when you actually drill down a little bit and look at that front sprocket uh, on the crank, uh, you've got three choices, 14, 16, and 18. And my big question about this is this is whether this is a suggestion that they think that a lot of people who are going to be purchasing bikes specced with this group are actually going to be moving slower and, you know, aren't you know, super fast types, or is this partly a, uh, an attempt to direct market forces and say, look, if you're buying an e-mountain bike, you're not a cross country racer. You know, yeah. we don't want to be selling these to guys who are trying to set, you know, Strava KOMs and that sort of thing. So right. I've got some questions there, but it's really fascinating. Yep. Worth exploring EX1 then the new group the new one-by group from SRAM, who's really kind of led the way on this whole one-by thing. Uh, while we're in the garage, Let's open some toolboxes and see how many torque wrenches, tire levers, and Allen keys we can find. One of the barriers to cycling certainly can be repairs. Just fixing a flat can cause some people to you know, give up the activity. Then there's the rider who jumps in a group ride with a loose brake caliper or a bottom bracket so creaky you'd swear the frame is about to snap. <laughs> Fixing or altering your bike just kind of comes with the ta- uh, territory. Patrick, you have real-world experience in wrenching. Give us your resume and give us your list of tool minimums and maybe a few things people could do without. Well, um, I started wrenching in bike shops in 1987 back in Memphis. Um, and uh, it was uh, quite an education for me, uh, trial by fire. And uh, went on to work for a number of other bike shops uh, over the years. And then uh, when we all thought that things were going to go big box, uh, I actually directed a... Uh, a, uh, a bike operation within a big box retailer, uh, Dick's, the first time they did that back in New England. And then later, uh, well, around the same time, uh, I spent some time wrenching for the ju- uh, U.S. national team, mostly the juniors. And it, so it was a, a lot of varied experience, really enjoyed it, uh, but don't miss working in a bike shop at all. The the upshot for me personally is that I still really love working on bikes 
and I do 99.8% of all my work myself. Uh, about the only time I enlist help is when it requires a tool that I don't own. Yeah. What do you, yeah, what do you think everyone, you know, who rides regularly should own? Well, a, a complete set of Allen wrenches that is going from, you know, two millimeter to 10 millimeter, uh, and then some torque wrenches, uh, along with some Torx wrenches. They, those fittings are becoming, uh, more and more common on bikes, uh, especially with, uh, some of the stuff coming out of SRAM and some of the stuff that I'm seeing with, uh, uh, disc brakes. So, you know, having uh, T20 and T25 seems to be pretty important at this point. Yeah. Enough to get by, to, to change a tire, to to change out some brake pads. I mean, replacing bearings is probably not going to be something that, obviously you can do it, but most people are going to want to stay away from that type of work. But just some basic tight maintenance is kind of what we're looking for here, right? Yeah, I mean, more and more, there are so many tools that you really you know, don't need to own uh, unless you really want to be your own home mechanic. You know, uh, the the bearing pullers, uh, you know, bearing presses, uh, you know, headset presses, things like that. So much of that stuff, people really, you know, don't need to own. That's the point at which I say, you know, you, you really kind of want to have a good relationship with your local bike shop. You know, we spend mm-hmm. so much time talking about, you know, how the traditional IBD is in trouble. Um, you know, back in the 1990s, I knew a whole lot of guys who would overhaul their bikes themselves and, you know, didn't go to shops for uh, much assistance. And now, you know, with the way, uh, you know, between DI2 and hydraulic discs and a few other technologies uh, and then all the sealed bearings, I really think that people ought to have a great relationship with their uh, local shop uh, for a lot of stuff that really is, you know, has gotten much more complicated to take care of. Right. Totally agree with that. Uh, Nonetheless, I have made some attempts myself, too, to be self-sufficient with my mechanical side of things. I try to cover, you know, the basics. Again, changing brake pads, tires, cabling. I can do handlebar wraps. So I have a work stand. I have lubes and greases. A couple of torque wrenches, like Patrick uh, mentioned, one for bottom brackets and the other for smaller parts, hex and torx keys. In some cases, I have duplicates with the doubles in a travel bag uh, for races or, or road trips. I like to just be able to grab that tool bag and, and take off and not have to like sort through all my tools. Yeah. But to, uh, to illustrate my favorite tool, Patrick, I want to take the pace line on a little audio field trip. Well, for the first time ever, the Paceline Cycling Podcast is going into my garage here at my home. That's the garage door going up. (laughs) Walking over here to the toolbox, we're going to find, oh, the normal stuff. There's my torque wrenches right here. Uh, I have an assortment of uh, wrenches, good crescent wrench, you know, for getting a a cassette off. Everyone's got to have a hammer. (laughs) Not great on carbon, but... Um, I have uh, cable cutters, channel locks, good selection of wrenches here. But folks, I believe I have what could be the ultimate cycling tool, and it is right here below my bench. Now that would be uh, my one and a half horsepower, six gallon 
air compressor. <laughs> a perfect tool to have in your garage. So an air compressor, quite obviously, is great for, you know, blowing off your bike and cleaning up things. Um, I also run a lot of tubeless, so I like to, you know, I could switch my little attachments over and put on a attachment that will allow me to inflate my tubeless tires as well. It's really a great a great tool. Is it necessary? It, probably not. You don't you can get by without something like this, but a, a great convenience to have as part of your toolbox. No, but I, I love that compressor, Patrick. It is a recent upgrade too, I had a much smaller one, but I got I got that one as a birthday present. You know, uh, <laughs> nice. one area of my life where I am I am truly very lucky is of course my wife, but also my father in law uh, Oscar Carrillo, he worked in the trades his whole life. He was a sheet metal worker, so he knows and loves tools and has taken a personal interest in my toolbox. He even uh, built my workbench, so I'm truly grateful for his assistance. You know, you can't just have tools. you gotta have, you got to have people sometime. Uh, the ultimate toolbox, though, Patrick, might be something you and I saw at Sea Otter, and that is Velofix. Uh, it's not really a toolbox, though. It's actually a Sprinter <laughs> van filled with tools. And we talked to Chris Jimay, the CEO of Velofix, about the proper tool for the job. First of all, people may have seen the vans roaming around their neighborhoods. Give us a brief description of what these vans are about, what they can expect from them. Yeah, Velofix is a, is a mobile bike shop. So the tallest and longest Mercedes Sprinter they make, you book online and the bike shop comes right to your home, your office, wherever you are, and fixes your road bike, your mountain bike, your commuter, your e-bike, any kind of bike you have. Right. What kind of stock do you have in these in these mobiles? Can you get enough stuff in these things Abs- to, to fix any bikes? Yeah, absolutely. We buy uh, we buy our inventory from the same places that uh, the local bike shops do. Uh, the van can hold up to fifteen thousand dollars worth of inventory. We've got additional storage as well. The way our booking system works is you put in the bike, you pick your service package, package, and you can tell us if you have any issues, so we can bring it in inventory in advance of your service. What can you carry every brand that you need to in here? Do you have a, if I have a Shram bike, you can deal with that. A Campy bike, what what have you? Absolutely, yeah. As I said, we, we buy from all the major distributors. We buy all the best brands. We use Park Tool for our tools. Um, all the best tires, the bar tape, the chains, Shimano, SRAM, uh, any product you need, any type of bike you need, we have it. What can you? Obviously, you're, you're mobile, which a bike shop cannot be. But what else do you bring that a bike shop can? Well, we, we uh, you know all of our mechanics are certified. They have to be certified at, at, to one of the accredited schools in North America. Uh, we get one-on-one time with your mechanic. As I said, we come to your home, your office. Um, we do a lot of corporate days as well. So uh, we work with Microsoft, uh, Snapchat, Facebook, Amazon, Lululemon, big companies like that, where they book, and we've got the mobile shop at their offices doing services. So the convenience factor is a big, big, big thing for us. Right. I mean, you encourage the customer to get into the van here. You make it a spot where they can sit and enjoy themselves too, if they want. Absolutely, it's it's wireless in here. You can come and get a little bit of work done. We've got a coffee machine. We have a flat screen TV. We can uh, we can run the Giro or a Red Bull Rampage. And absolutely, we encourage it. We want we want to educate our customers as well. We want them to learn more about their bikes and uh, and ultimately build a strong relationship with them. So a lot of guys and, and girls sit in and, and get educated. And there's a bit of retail going on here too. I mean, people can buy stuff. Ab- absolutely. Same thing as I, I said earlier, we sell anything that goes on the bike. So you need a power meter, um, you need a new wheel set, you need a Garmin or a Garmin mount, we can have that available. We actually, we sell sunglasses as well. We sell nutrition as well. So anything you need for your bike, we can do it for you. 
And on the business side of things, you're looking now for franchisees. You need to put people in these vans. You need to expand to different markets. Absolutely, yeah. We've sold uh, we've sold 49 franchises now, so we're we're in every major city across Canada. We're in a lot of major markets in the United States. It's a franchise-based business. We're looking for either owner-operators, so mechanics that want to own their own bike shop, so to speak, and investors that want to buy multiple territories, hire people to run the vans for them. Um, that's a business model. Uh, we hope by the end of this year we have 100 franchises sold, and, and next year our goal is 220 franchises sold in North America. If somebody thought they might want to get into one of these, what, what could they be looking at? Yeah, the, the franchise fee is $25,000. The truck and the build-out of the truck is approximately 90. Uh, in the United States, Mercedes will lease that package for you, so you can make a small uh, down payment and you can roll that into a lease package. So we like to tell people for about $50,000, you've got the keys, you're fully loaded, and, and you're running your business. Uh, you are asking customers to maybe divorce themselves from their bike shop a little bit. I mean, you're trying to take some business and say, hey, we think we have a better way. Is that some of what's going on? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, when we go into a new territory, we try to make friends with the bike shops. You know, I'm not selling helmets and shoes right now. I don't sell bib shorts and jerseys. Um, you know, so there's some referral business. When a bike shop gets overloaded with service, we like it to come back. Um, you know, ultimately, I think some customers will, will use both going forward. You know, what we offer is, is something that the shop can't. You know, it's a convenience factor. It's coming to your home. But uh, you're right. I mean, and some customers... We're super loyal to their shop, and we came along, and, and we brought them over. And, um, you know, our, our business model is basically uh, a shop. We consider ourselves a shop. You know, we're on four wheels, but we consider ourselves a bike shop. And I guess that might be one of the hang-ups for the customer is a shop, they always know where it is. Yeah. Velifix drives away. They don't know all, <laughs> where, where it is all the time. Is that one of the things you gotta you got to build that trust with the customer? Yeah, I think I think it's 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 like any business. You, you need to show people that you do a good job, you know, to show people that, you know, you have a hundred percent guarantee that the mechanics are great. Um, our booking system is very, very easy. You can do it on your smartphone. You can do it on your laptop. You just put in your zip code and it brings up the time and dates where in your neighborhood. You pick mountain bike package, road bike package, you book two o'clock and we show up at two o'clock. So, um, that's something that people love to have. Um, and you know, we're at the events, you know, we're out at all the local events. We support uh, community events. We go to the schools. We, you know, we tune, uh, kids bikes and do safety checks on bikes. So, you know, we, uh, as much as we may have, you know, 50 trucks now, we, we're still local. The person that owns that franchise is usually in the community. They're local. They're connected to it. So, um, yeah, it's a big part of what we're doing. Uh, you can see a picture of the van in our Sea Otter Roundup on Red Kite Prayer. Patrick, it was yep. an impressive vehicle. But what did you think of it as a business? I think it's dynamite. I really love it. You know, there are, you know, certainly it, there are people who are absolutely married to their shop and that's terrific and I don't see any reason for anyone to stop having that relationship but there are an awful lot of people who aren't particularly wedded to a local retailer uh, but they still need you know a good relationship with someone for great service and this is an opportunity for them to have that also you know like it or not online retailing is going to change the bicycle market period. You know, let's not engage in better or worse. It's simply going to change. And one of the interesting things is as people begin to purchase bikes that are being shipped directly to their home, uh, some of those folks, no matter how, uh, how well assembled ahead of time those bikes are, uh, some of those people are still going to need 
some assistance in terms of getting their bikes assembled. And I see Velofix as being a great opportunity, uh, you know, a, a great option uh, to fulfill that need. Um, and also, I'll add that just this past weekend, I was down in Marin County at Ales and Trails, and there was a Velofix fan there. Yep, and so, around here in the, in the LA area, especially around Santa Monica, we see a Velofix fan uh, roaming around. I to, uh, to second that, Patrick, I think that the bike delivery thing, and that's part of the Velofix business model, will become key to anyone with a mobile business connected to, to bike bike wrenching. It certainly may be the opportunity for shops to step up and say, hey, maybe we need to start going out to customers where they are as opposed to asking them to come into us. This may motivate you know other th- other businesses too to crop up, not just Velofix. It is. It does sound expensive. I mean, it sounds pricey to get it. if you want to get into a Velofix operation. That sounds like a lot of money. You know, there one of the problems that you hear an awful lot from people who aren't uh, using a retailer currently and are you know buying online whatnot. Um, they haven't been satisfied with the level of service they get. So they just figure, well, I'll do it myself. Um, So the opportunity to get really great service, you know, even if they're paying more for it, that could change, you know, how the bike market functions in some ways. Uh, the, The idea that they, you know, that they will go to uh, a big employer and, you know, essentially set up shop in the parking lot so that people can bring their bikes down for service. That is just fantastic. I mean, when I was contracting for Southern California Edison, there were the car wash guys, but man, the number of cyclists we had, if there had been a Villa fix showing up, I, I can assure you that people would have taken their bikes down there after lunch. Mm-hmm. Well, get yourself a bike, but get some tools too. Make sure you have your Allen wrenches and tire levers and a few things to help you fix your bike. And if not, there's VeloFix, of course. They have an app. There's an app for that. Uh, Lots of ways to get your bike fixed. Just pay attention to your machine. It's important to show some love because it will show some back. Uh, Coming up next on the Pace Line, we cap things off with a look at some special cycling caps. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, but there's just two of us today. Patrick Brady, Michael Houghton, we're missing Fatty, but we expect to have him back soon. Uh, cycling caps, we love them here on the Pace Line, but this iconic piece of the kit has been buried in the 2000s. A lot of that has to do with the mandatory helmet rule put into place around 2003. Pro riders you know, used to sprint to the line with just a thin piece of cotton protecting their head. It certainly looked cool. Until the CAT scan came along. I wouldn't say it was protecting anything. Yeah, not at all. Patrick, you wear them. You have written about them, a post called, quite simply, the cycling cap. Are they form or function for you? Uh, I'm going to go with D, all of the above. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're a stylish way to accessorize your kit. But, you know, I only put a cycling cap on when I'm riding when I need it, when I'm in a situation where I need that brim uh, or want to block the wind from hitting my head a little bit. So colder days, you know, once the temperature is up above 70 degrees, it's sort of unlikely that I'll wear a cycling cap. But anytime it's cool, uh, certainly anytime it's below 60 degrees, anytime it's raining, 
uh, I'm going to have a cap on for sure. Yeah, me too. I tend to go let weather lead the way with my cycling cap use. Uh, I do have I do have one riding partner who almost always wears one, and I think he. In fact, I know in one instance it makes his helmets fit a little bit better. He's pulled the liners or the, some of the padding out on his helmets and just used a cycling cap instead to uh, make make the helmet contact his head a little bit better. So that's a, another purpose altogether at times. Um, I love the guys who wear them over and over, never seem to wash them, or they look like they've just been through hell. <laughs> but with that said, Patrick, do you are there in your book? Are there any rules for cycling cap newbies? Well, okay, I'll give you one rule, okay? No baseball caps. Okay. You've but, seen that. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've both seen that. Uh you know, seriously, I I'm not big on rules in cycling. I love good style, you know, and uh a cap that is, you know, well matched to your kit, uh even if it's not like, you know, kit specific. I love that. Uh I love seeing, you know, somebody who you know, can kind of emulate the look of the Euro pros. But the moment somebody wants to start instituting a bunch of rules and, oh, well, you can't ride this with that, or you can't, you know, you can't wear a cap when it's above 80 degrees. Oh my gosh, put my head in the sand. I, I just, I can't stand that stuff. You know, yeah. do what you enjoy. I enjoy a cycling cap when it's colder or wet. Yep. How about off, will you wear them off the bike? Oh, hell yes. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, just this morning, I was uh, at Sea Otter. I was given one of the new house-designed bicycling caps. Um, and since I can now count myself as a contributor, uh, I wear that thing proudly. It has yet to be under a helmet. I plan to wear this uh, socially. Well, then you will probably like uh, our next interview coming up regarding some very special uh, cycling caps. The Tour of California, Rafa, for the last three years, has been trying to prolong the life of the beloved cycling cap. And this year, they have teamed up with a top designer, Herman Miller, to issue a series of cap now caps. That is now Herman Miller, of course, is best known for for office furniture, not cycling caps. I'm sitting but on the, one now. <laughs> yeah, good for you. I wish I had one. They're great chairs, and they make great office equipment. Craigslist. But, yeah, but the company has a, a long history in textiles, and the head of creative design at Herman Miller is an avid cyclist. I talked to Herman Miller's Ben Watson about the specialing caps they help design. Ben, tell me about the, the cycling cap initiative. That's what I guess what I want to call it. So I get this initiative. You found some incredible designs in the Herman Miller archives and decided to do something with them. Well... The story maybe even has an earlier chapter, which is our long friendship uh, with the folks at Rafa. And we've, been, we've known one another for many, many years, and they've helped us out with, the, with Kit for our cycling team. And we were chatting one day about how we could do more things together. And the notion of doing something for, in a way, our home state of California, um, and at the same moment... Uh, the tour of California was on the agenda, and we said, actually, is there a way that we could grab some of our uh, California modern history um, and bring that to life in a special way for the tour? And it was sort of with that first place of starting, we gave birth to the idea of um, digging into our archives for some historic textile patterns and using those as inspiration to create a series of special caps. 
Alex Gerard, that's the man behind the design that people will see. Who, what was he about? Um, Mr. Gerard was a extraordinary designer active um, in the middle of the century. Uh, he joined uh, Herman Miller in the late 50s at the prompting of his good friend Charles Eames. And Gerard managed all of our textiles and our textile division. In fact, over his several decades with the company, he designed over 300 textiles that were used for upholsteries, for curtains, for wall coverings, um, even as artwork. And so those, his patterns, that is, serve as the design uh, and the look of the cycling caps you came up with, Rafa. Absolutely. And uh, the team at Rafa had the notion of not creating just um, a cap, but using uh, finding an inspiration that was in some way connected to the stage on, for each of the men's and women's uh, stages um, here in California. Now, these will be like limited edition caps. Once the tour of California is over, do you anticipate there'll be any left, or what are the prospects there? The, I think we're going to announce each cap um, each day of the tour, they're extremely limited in quantity. And so when they're done, they're done. And we're, uh, uh, it's rather likely they'll be gone the, the day the tour is done. Right. Now, Herman Miller, a lot of folks will recognize the name, but they'll probably go, well, they make furniture. I mean, I sit in their chairs and they're comfortable. What the heck is Herman Miller doing in cycling caps? I think um, it's a great opportunity for folks to... Um, understand a little bit about Herman Miller's 111-year history this year and also our activity in all kinds of domains. So maybe folks are familiar with our designs from the mid-century, classic Eames designs that might be at MoMA, or familiar with current designs like our um, high-performance task seating that you might be sitting at in your office, an air-on chair or others. But folks maybe don't know everything that we do from all the textiles that we create uh, through our Maharam brand, um, the work we do to bring designs to customers in North America at Design Within Reach stores. So this this little collaboration is a way for us to uh, maybe open up some eyes of folks to see all the different things we do. Do you see a future in cycling for Herman? Or is it a one-off? Or I mean, look, Herman Miller, I see it. Uh, you make great things to sit in. Saddles, is that possibility um never say never to anything right but it's uh, certainly isn't on our immediate horizon yeah i think the we've got plenty of things to do in the domain of making um great spaces and, and great products that go into places with that said when you look at the bicycle the bicycle industry uh and design do you see opportunities or missed opportunities in that area I think um, I think we've become very uh, friendly with the folks at Rafa because we share a lot of things. Uh, we share a passion for solving problems. Rafa for riders, us for people more generally, people at work, people at home. Um, ways to make life better and doing that in a way that's both with products that are highly usable and highly beautiful. And the, uh, I think that as a charge can gives us a ton of runway. The, uh, we don't plan to become a cycling company, but it's fun to work with folks like 
like Rafa, who's dedicated to that space. But I guess what I mean to say, too, is when you look at the bicycle and what people wear, or what, how, shoes, helmets, do the designs catch your eye, or do you go, hmm, they certainly could have done a better job with that? I think um, there are great, uh, there's great and terrible design all around us, <laughs> um, inclusive in the, in the cycling world. And I think uh, for us, um, and for me personally, design isn't something that's, um, it's not frosting on a cake. It's not a graphic up that's applied at the last minute. It's actually the entirety of the solution. So are we actually solving the problem well? And I think that's, for me, an important distinction is to say it's not, um, the design of that bike is not, uh, the graphics have been applied to it. But everything that starts all the way with the material innovation, uh, the thinking behind the, the geometries, the connections, the, the whole of the solution. So I think what's awesome about cycling is that it attracts a lot of passionate designers. There's a long history of designers who, uh, who are cyclists and vice versa. Um, because it's a space where um, the great designs make a huge difference in performance. And so... I think that's why it's a space that's exciting for that Herman Miller's been attached to for for decades actually, uh, because it attracts and great the benefit of great design is really called out there. Yeah, we have posted a story with pictures of the caps on Red Kite Prayer, so check them out. Patrick, really unique stuff here, and and for the design enthusiasts, it's a chance at a little history. It's it just sounds really really cool. I'm not somebody who. Uh, compulsively collects caps the way some of my friends do. And in a way, I, I sort of envy that. But it's just, it's one of those things that when I come across a really cool cap, uh, great, wonderful. But this is something where I think I'm going to go out of my way to pick one up. Yeah, each cap, there is a Santa Rosa cap, by the way. And each cap under the bill has the stage number, uh, the fin- the start and finishing towns, and the date that stage was raced. And then you get that Alexander Girard pattern on the hat, and they are unique, and they're pretty, they're pretty crazy looking at times. But they all draw uh, the, the, the textiles themselves were inspirations that Girard had, and and he put them down, you know, on fabrics, and they sat in archives for a number of years. I, I believe a lot, some of the stuff wasn't even used, so that's what makes it special. Um, they're thirty bucks, which is you know, typical of Rice, uh, typical yeah, of Rafa. So yeah. Rafa price, that's a Rafa price, pricey for a cycling cap. They can be worn. I mean, the, Rafa built them with, you know, a little windproofing and 100% cotton, one size fits all. So they can be used, but I think, you know, more more likely they will be a, a collector for somebody. So pretty cool stuff, though. Check them out at redkiteprayer.com if you want to see some photos of those special Rafa cycling caps co-designed by Herman Miller. Oh, the pace line wrapping up now. Time to take the helmet off, but hey, leave that cycling cap on. Uh, Patrick, Red Kite Prayer has been a busy place. What is coming up there? Well, let's see. Uh, this past weekend, there was a uh, an event for Owen Mulholland, who passed away this winter. And so I've got a, a little piece on the get-together that we had on his behalf, a little remembrance. It was a real collection of cycling royalty. Also, I'm working on a review of a cargo bike, an e-assist cargo bike from Yuba called the Spicy Curry that I have fallen in love with. And uh, 
will be talking to a friend about eBaying some of my stuff so I can maybe buy one. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, because I've been playing with a lot of uh, tubeless stuff recently, um, I've been using the new uh, Joe Blow, the new edition of the Joe Blow pump from Topeak, uh, which has a reservoir that you can pump up so you don't need a compressor like you have. Right. And uh, it's a pretty dynamite little device. You know, you don't have to plug it in. Just pump up that reservoir, uh, flip the little dial on it, and uh, it will it will inflate a, a tire, you know, to the point of seating. Yep, and much more mobile than a than a large compressor is. <laughs> I have a hard time taking mine on the road. Uh, a Fair quick enough. plug for our missing man, Fatty. On the fat ca- a Fatty cast, that is, he has a really a good interview with Betsy Andreu, and it's not all about Lance. Some good, <laughs> yep. interesting insight there into her life and her way of being, so... If you want to hear more about Betsy or what Fat Cyclist has been up to, check out FattyCast. Yeah. The Pace Line can be found on Red Kite Prayer, where you will also find links to this show, and you can comment on our discussion. iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Music, three places to subscribe to The Pace Line. You can also track us using your favorite pod app. There's always a way to get The Pace Line. So, uh, for Fatty and Patrick... I'm Michael Houghton. We'll talk to you next time on the Pace Line. We all love this race. We love coming here and racing in front of home fans. And, uh, you know, to, to put on a show for them and uh, for us to get a win, it, it's huge for us. It's huge for our sponsors. And uh, we're, just, we're, we're just really happy about it.